Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Perial for Wednesday, December 27th, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Railing Against Ag Regulation, Ethanol, a Key Iowa Issue for GOP Contenders, by Jared Strong. Republican candidates for the presidency have fawned over farmers this caucus season as they've courted voters in Iowa, the nation's top producer of corn, eggs, and pork. The candidates often talk in platitudes about their support for Iowa agriculture and paint themselves as farmers' best friends. I'm proud to be the most pro-farmer president that you've ever had in your life, former President Donald Trump told supporters during a campaign stop in Council Bluffs in July. None of the candidates has suggested that farmers be forced to implement costly measures to help the environment. To the contrary, the candidates rail against federal regulations that pertain to agriculture, especially those that seek to protect the nation's streams. I will prevent both federal and state overreach from obstructing our agricultural industry, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wrote in the Des Moines Register. The lone agriculture issue to cause serious contention among the candidates is ethanol, which Iowa also leads the nation in producing. Ohio businessman Vivek Ramaswamy said he supports the ethanol industry, but when he was poised earlier this month to announce his forceful opposition to using eminent domain to build carbon dioxide pipelines and to even question their purpose, the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association released a scathing critique of the candidate. The association called him a hypocrite for his support of an oil pipeline and lack of support for pipelines that might benefit ethanol producers and farmers. Ethanol has, on the whole, been a rallying point for the candidates. More than half of the state's corn is used to produce the fuel, bolstering demand for the crop and the price per bushel it fetches. And the candidates have supported its use in combustion engines as an alternative to electric vehicles, which are largely disdained by Republican voters. A Gallup poll in March found that 71% of Republicans would not consider owning an electric vehicle. But the unwavering support for ethanol among the candidates was not initially clear. DeSantis, when he was a congressman representing Florida in 2017, supported an end to the renewable fuel standard, which mandates a certain amount of ethanol be blended with gasoline each year. Trump has taken repeated shots at DeSantis because of it. If he had his way, the entire economy of Iowa would absolutely collapse, Trump said in July. DeSantis has reversed course on the issue and said recently he would not seek to end the biofuels mandate. The candidates have expressed support for the year-round sales of E15, a gasoline blend that is 15% ethanol. In some states, including Iowa, the gasoline that is blended with ethanol is more volatile, and the E15 that is created with it does not meet federal fuel standards in the summer that are meant to limit air pollution caused by evaporation. Why is government telling you what months you can do it? Nikki Haley, a former ambassador to the United Nations, said during a campaign stop in Altoona. 
Trump scored points with the ethanol industry in 2019 when his administration decided to allow the widespread sale of E15 during summer months. But the rule change was struck down by an appeals court that said only Congress could authorize it. He also drew the ire of ethanol advocates when his administration granted waivers to fuel refiners that attempted, exempted them from renewable fuel standard requirements. Trump holds a commanding lead in Iowa, according to a recent Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, Iowa poll. He is the top choice of 51% of likely Republican caucus goers. DeSantis and Haley are a distant second and third, with 19% and 16%. Ramaswamy has the fourth most support at 5%. The next is a local story titled, YMCA Official Wins Award for Promoting Physical Fitness for Those with Mental Issues, by Tim Rower. A local YMCA official has been nationally recognized for a program promoting physical fitness for those dealing with mental health issues. Leo McIntosh, Operations Director for YMCA of Greater Omaha, recently won the National In Shape Community Champion Award for his efforts to increase access for these individuals to specialized physical fitness programs. We partner with Heartland Family Service, and this is our third year doing it, McIntosh told the non-Periel in an interview. In Shape is a program for adults experiencing serious and persistent mental illness. The evidence-based wellness service seeks to improve their physical health and quality of life while living with mental illness. McIntosh said they meet with these individuals at the Council Bluffs YMCA for an initial 12-week program that focuses on exercises that best fit these individuals. The trainers even work alongside them to improve their comfort level. Once that program is completed, the In Shape program participants take part in another 12-week program alongside others with similar issues. I think Heartland Family Service is getting great results, McIntosh said. Amanda Cavan, Heartland Family Service In Shape Coordinator, praised McIntosh. Leo and the YMCA and Council Bluffs have been champions of the InShape program since we first approached them in 2017, Cavan said. Leo worked with our program to offer membership fees that would be feasible to a lower-income population. He has also been extremely open to having those with no income use the facility while working with our health mentors. The YMCA has also helped InShape provide space, for people in need and organized a fitness class at no extra cost to members, she said. They see areas of need in our community and try the best they can to help, she said. This is a huge reflection of Leo's leadership. Though appreciative, McIntosh said the award isn't just his. It's for the entire team at the YMCA, he said. Turning to page two, we have this story at the top. China Faces New Challenges in Changed World by Doug Mills. Dateline, Beijing. China's prospects for 2024 look uncertain as a year that opened free of COVID-19 lockdowns winds down without the dreamed-of robust recovery for the world's number two economy. The wars in Gaza and Ukraine are straining China's ties with the West. A U.S.-China Leaders Summit helped get relations back on track, but also clearly defined the stark divide between the two global powers. 
To counter a U.S.-led world order, China is pushing alternative visions for global security and development whose prospects depend partly on restoring its own economic vitality. Pandemic-related restrictions over, China still faces long-term fundamental challenges, a falling birth rate and aging population. India surpassed it as the world's largest country in April, and its rivalry with the United States over technology, Taiwan, and control of the high seas. Another, to balance the ruling Communist Party's tightening grip on myriad aspects of life with the flexibility needed to keep the economy dynamic and growing. This year started on such an optimistic note, said Wang Jiwei, a China expert and former editor-in-chief of the South China Morning Post newspaper. And now, as we are ending 2023, I think people are getting more worried about what will be in store for next year. As China's mask and testing requirements faded, for the first time in three years, crowds thronged temples and parks last January for the Lunar New Year. Life is returning to normal, said Zhang Yiwen, visiting an historic Beijing district bustling with tourists. I look forward to seeing how the economy grows in the new year and what the country can accomplish in the international market. Hopes for warming ties with Washington were dashed with the shooting down of an apparently off-course Chinese balloon that drifted over the United States in February. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken canceled a trip to Beijing. A month later, during the annual session of the largely ceremonial legislature, Chinese leader Xi Jinping accused the U.S. of seeking to isolate and contain China. But China's reopening brought a parade of foreign leaders to Beijing as it strengthened links with the Mideast and other developing regions and showed support for Russia and set about mending relations with Europe, the U.S., and Australia. China raised its international profile when Saudi Arabia and Iran reached an agreement in Beijing to reestablish diplomatic relations. Xi Suxi, a regular analyst on Chinese TV, highlighted China's capacity to play a diplomatic role in the developing world. During the National People's Congress, Premier Li Qinghua announced an economic growth target of around 5% for the year. But Li, who died in October, was on his way out, replaced by close associates of Xi as he further consolidated his hold on power. China's economic rebound was short-lived, though the Shanghai Auto Show showcased one gleaming bright spot, electric vehicles. Exports of EVs have soared to the extent that by September, the European Union launched a trade investigation into Chinese subsidies to EV makers. Blinken made his balloon-delayed trip to Beijing, followed by visits by U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Climate Envoy John Kerry, and then Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Meanwhile, the economy was slowing as growing numbers of property developers defaulted on debts, caught short in the crackdown on excessive borrowing that began in 2020 and has hamstrung the entire industry. The jobless rate among young Chinese surged to about one in five, leading the government to stop publishing that data.
When the Zhangzi Enterprise Group missed payments to investors, worries deepened that the real estate meltdown could spread into a financial crisis. The government began loosening restrictions on lending for home purchases and stepped up spending on construction, though housing prices kept falling. Relations with the United States warmed further in the fall, though fundamental differences over technology and territorial disputes remain. Visits by Philadelphia Orchestra members, the American Ballet Theater, American World War II veterans, and California Governor Gavin Newsom set a friendly tone ahead of a November meeting in San Francisco between Xi and U.S. President Joe Biden. Still, ahead of the Biden-Xi meeting, the U.S. broadened its export controls on advanced computer chips, and a collision of Chinese and Philippine ships in the South China Sea hearkened to tensions that could draw the U.S. into conflict. As the year's end drew near, the passing of former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger underscored how times have changed. Kissinger helped engineer the normalization of China-U.S. ties in the early 1970s and had met with Xi in Beijing in August at age 100. But his was another era when the two sides... excuse me, found common ground despite their disagreements. The future will test the wisdom of both Chinese and Western leaders, she said. Analysts now think the government will achieve its 5% growth target, but they expect a slowdown next year. This matters not only for China's workers, but for the whole world. The U.S. economy is the foundation of America's status as the dominant global power. Even after its auto and steel makers faltered, Silicon Valley led the way into the 21st century. In his second decade in power, Xi aims to restore China's global stature. That will depend largely on the Communist Party's capacity to overcome its many challenges in 2024 and beyond. Also from page two, boy six put on wrong flight to Florida on way to visit grandma. Gateline Fort Myers, Florida. A six-year-old boy who left on a flight for the Christmas holiday to visit his grandmother in southwest Florida instead was put on the wrong plane and ended up 160 miles away in Orlando, Florida. When the grandmother, Maria Ramos, showed up on Thursday at Southwest Florida International Airport in Fort Myers to greet her grandson, who was flying for the first time from Philadelphia, she was told he wasn't on the Spirit Airlines flight. I ran inside the plane to the flight attendant and asked her, where's my grandson? He was handed over to you at Philadelphia, she said. No, I had no kids with me, Ramos told Wink News. She then got a call from her grandson from the airport in Orlando, telling her that he had landed. An email was sent to Spirit Airlines on Tuesday morning seeking comment. In a statement to Wink News, Spirit Airlines said the boy was under the care and supervision of an airline employee the entire time, even though he was incorrectly boarded on a flight to Orlando. Once the mistake was discovered, the airline let the family know, the statement said. We take the safety and responsibility of transporting all of our guests seriously and are conducting an internal investigation the statement said. We apologize to the family for this experience. Now this story titled Holiday Spending in U.S. Rises During Holidays. Sales were up this year despite some financial anxiety. Dateline New York. 
Holiday sales rose this year and spending remained resilient during the shopping season, even with Americans wrestling with higher prices in some areas and other financial worries, according to the last, latest measure released Tuesday. Holiday sales from the beginning of November through Christmas Eve climbed 3.1%, a slower pace than the 7.6% increase from a year earlier, according to MasterCard's spending pulse, which tracks all kinds of payments, including cash and debit cards. This year's sales are more in line with what is typical during the holiday season. However, after a surge in spending last year, the same period, the number of people seeking unemployment benefits has remained historically low. Still, sales growth was a bit lower than the 3.7% increase MasterCard spending pulse projected in September. Tuesday's data excludes the automotive industry and isn't adjusted for inflation. Consumer spending accounts for nearly 70% of U.S. economic activity, and economists carefully monitor how Americans spend, particularly during the holidays, to gauge how they're feeling financially. Now this story. Biden orders strikes on Iranian-aligned group. Dateline Washington. U.S. President Joe Biden ordered the United States military to carry out retaliatory airstrikes against Iranian-backed militia groups after three U.S. service members were injured in a drone attack in northern Iraq. National Security Council spokesperson Adrian Watson said one of the U.S. troops suffered critical injuries in the attack that occurred Monday. The Iranian-backed militia Khatib Hezbollah and affiliated groups under an umbrella of Iranian-backed militants claimed credit for the attack. Iraqi officials said U.S. strikes targeting militia sites early Tuesday killed one militant and wounded 18. They came at a time of heightened fears of regional spillover of the Israel-Hamas war. Biden spent Christmas at the presidential retreat at Camp David, Maryland, was alerted to the attack by White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan shortly after it occurred Monday and ordered the Pentagon and his top national security aides to prepare response options. The U.S. strikes were carried out at about 4.45 a.m. Tuesday in Iraq, less than 13 hours after the U.S. personnel were attacked. Now to the Daily Digest column. Migrant caravan continues march. Under a beating sun, thousands of migrants in a caravan continued to trudge through southern Mexico on Tuesday, with some saying they expect nothing good from an upcoming meeting this week between American and Mexican officials about the migrant surge at the U.S. border. The migrants passed by Mexico's main inland immigration inspection point outside the town of Huixla in southern Chiapas state. National Guard officers there made no attempt to stop the estimated 6,000 members of the caravan. The migrants were trying to make it to the next town via Comal Titlan, about 11 miles northwest of Huixla. In the past, Mexico let migrants go through, trusting that they would tire themselves out walking along the highway. No migrant caravan has ever walked the 1,000 miles to the U.S. border. Menendez prosecutors don't want trial delayed. Dateline New York. Federal prosecutors on Tuesday urged a judge to reject U.S. Senator Bob Menendez's 
request to delay his bribery trial scheduled for next spring by two months until July. Prosecutors argued against the postponement a week after defense lawyers offered multiple reasons they say a trial of the Democrat and co-defendants, including his wife, should be delayed. The senator gave up his position as chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee after his September arrest. Prosecutors said the original May 6th trial date was appropriate and drew no objections when it was announced, even though circumstances were the same. And the briefly notes, Colorado Court. Police said Tuesday they are investigating incidents directed at Colorado Supreme Court justices and providing extra patrols around their homes in Denver after the court's decision to remove former President Donald Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot. Alabama, U.S. District Judge Lillis Burke declined Tuesday to pause litigation challenging Alabama's ban on gender-affirming care for minors as similar cases wind upward toward the U.S. Supreme Court. The Justice Department requested the stay. NATO membership. The Turkish Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee gave its consent to Sweden's bid to join NATO on Tuesday, drawing the previously non-aligned Nordic country closer to membership in the Western Military Alliance. Alexei Navalny, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, on Tuesday released a sardonic statement about his transfer to an an Arctic prison colony, his first appearance since associates lost contact with him three weeks ago. I am your new Santa Claus, Navalny said in a tweet. Congo. Flooding triggered by heavy rains in central Congo killed at least 22 people, including 10 from the same family, a local official said Tuesday. The hours-long rainfall in Kasai, central province, destroyed many structures, the province's governor, John Kabaya, said. And villagers killed. Gunmen attacked remote villages over the weekend in north-central Nigeria's Plateau State, killing at least 140 people, officials and survivors said Tuesday. The latest case this year of such mass killings blamed on the farmer-herder crisis in the West African nation. Now this story titled, Missile Strikes Hit Russian Ship. Dateline, Kiev, Ukraine. Ukrainian warplanes damaged a Russian ship moored in the Black Sea of off Crimea, both countries said Tuesday, bolstering Ukrainian morale after battlefield disappointments and doubts about the future of Western aid. The planes fired guided missiles at the landing ship Novosherkosk, which is moored at a base in the city of Fedosia, Russia's defense ministry said. Video on Russian and Ukrainian social media showed an explosion in the port. Ukrainian authorities claimed the ship was destroyed. They said it was likely carrying ammunition and possibly drones. The 360-foot Novosherkosk can carry 10 tanks and 225 sailors. We saw how powerful the blast and detonation were. It's extremely difficult for a ship to survive something like that. Ukrainian Air Force spokesman Yuri Inhat said on U.S.-backed Radio Liberty. The Russian fleet has become smaller, Ukrainian Air Force commander Mykola Oloshku said in a mocking message on the social media app Telegram. He urged Russians to leave Crimea while it's not too late. Over the last few months, Ukrainian forces conducted a string of attacks around Crimea, 
a Black Sea Peninsula invaded and illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky credits those attacks, mostly with naval drones, with allowing Ukraine to restore navigation in the Black Sea and export of millions of tons of grain. In September, a Ukrainian attack hit the headquarters of Russia's Black Sea fleet in the Crimean city of Sebastopol, killing one serviceman. Ukraine launched more missiles against the city the next day. Despite high hopes for a broader Ukrainian summer counteroffensive, the front line barely moved and political disputes in allied countries left billions of dollars of aid in doubt. This week, President Joe Biden is struggling to secure congressional support for continuing American assistance to Ukraine, even though he repeatedly promised that the United States would back Ukraine for as long as it takes to defeat the Russian invasion. There's no sign of a bipartisan deal to maintain the flow of supplies as the war approaches its third year. Now turning to the lifestyle page, we have Another Year, Another Letter by Jerry Zizima. Since I am in the holiday spirit and having just consumed a mug of hot toddy, a glass of eggnog, and a nip of cheer, the holiday spirits are in me, I have decided to follow in that great tradition of boring everyone silly by writing a Christmas letter. That is why I am pleased as punch, which I also drank, to present the following chronicle of the Zizima family, which includes Jerry, the patriarch, and Sue, the matriarch, as well as two daughters, Ark, two sons-in-laws, Ark, and five grandchildren, Ark, and a partridge in a pear tree. Dear friends, it sure has been an eventful year for the Zizimas. The flush times began when Jerry and Sue renovated their bathroom. The project became necessary because the plumbing was leaking, the bathrooms, not Jerry's, so she dragooned him into making innumerable trips with her to a home improvement store for tile, a vanity, a sink, a faucet, a mirror, lights, a showerhead, and, in the end, a toilet. Even though Jerry helped with the painting, he was off the wall but on a roll, the porcelain convenience came out so nice that Jerry plans to invite fellow Grandpa King Charles to come over and sit on the throne. Speaking of grandpas and grandmas, Jerry and Sue celebrated 10 years of being grandparents and had many great adventures with all five of their grandchildren. The highlight was Jerry's humiliating loss to his six-year-old grandson in Dinosaur Bingo, which Jerry should have won because he is, of course, a dinosaur, a fact verified by the triumphant boy and his four-year-old twin siblings who gave Jerry a Pop Patrol Band-Aid when he skinned his knee while giving them horsey rides at the playground. Jerry and Sue participated in a yard sale at their younger daughter's house where their oldest two grandkids, sisters who are 10 and 7 years old, sold $50 worth of lemonade. The liquid assets convinced Jerry that he was in the wrong business. He made up for it by having a beer afterward. In other financial news, three of Jerry's business ventures failed miserably. First, he tried to talk Nike, which makes Air Jordan, into coming out with Air Zizima, a sneaker for geezers, but the company didn't run with it. Inspired when he saw 81-year-old Martha Stewart on the cover of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue, Jerry tried to convince AARP, the magazine, to put him on its cover in a Speedo, but for some reason the editors weren't interested. 
And finally, to celebrate 25 years since Jerry and Sue bought their house, Jerry pitched his own show, House Blunders, to HGTV, but he couldn't get his foot in the door. In fun animal news, Jerry rented a Vermont cow named Snookums to produce milk that was made into cheddar cheese, three bars of which were delivered to Jerry and Sue's house. The cheese was, it goes without saying, but Jerry can't help saying it anyway, an utter delight. In sad animal news, Lucy, the beloved pooch of Jerry's sister Elizabeth, crossed the Rainbow Bridge and went to doggy heaven. She was three months shy of 17. A mix of Spitz and Shepherd, with a nub of a tail she always wagged happily, Lucy was a sweet girl who exuded love and elicited smiles. She was especially close to her fellow, in human years, nonagenarian, Rosina, the mother of Jerry, Elizabeth, and their sister Susan. Rosina turned 99 and is still going strong. In fact, she went to Jerry and Sue's house for a big family birthday bash and was the life of the party. Speaking of which, Jerry and Sue attended a 70th birthday party with fellow members of the Stanford Catholic High School, class of 1971, and had a grand young time. Jerry, the baby of the bunch, physically and emotionally, won't hit the big 7-0 until January, but he celebrated anyway and proved he still is the class clown. Last, and certainly least, the literary world suffered a huge blow with the publication of Jerry's seventh book, The Good Humor Man, Tales of Life, Laughter, and, for dessert, Ice Cream. Happy New Year with love and laughter for the Zizimas. And that's written by Jerry Zizima, and he writes a humor column for the Tribune News Service and is the author of six books. You are listening to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Perial for Wednesday, December 27, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. There is one, Heather Jean Dalkey Haynes, October 25, 1978, to December 15, 2023. Heather Jean Dalkey Haynes, 45, passed away on Friday, December 15, 2023, in Council Bluffs, Iowa, at Jenny Edmondson Hospital. Heather was born to Eddie and Dinah Archibald Dalkey on October 25, 1978, in Omaha, Nebraska, as the first of their four beautiful girls. Heather met Heath Haynes, and they married on December 10, 1994. To this union, two children were born, Hayden Lynn and Haley Jean. Heather is preceded in death by Terry L. Haynes, George and Elsie Dalkey, Douglas Archbold Sr., and Marge Archbold. Survivors include her longtime life partner, Heath, and their two children, Hayden Haynes and Cherry Budd of Hancock, Iowa, Haley Haynes of Harlan, Iowa, and four grandchildren, Louis Swisher, Hudson, Aurora, and Athena Haynes. She is also survived by her parents, Eddie and Dinah Dalkey, along with her sisters, Melissa Dalkey and Wayne May, Jennifer Dalkey and Brian Conklin, and Elizabeth Dalkey and Kyle Osdemore, Cindy Haynes, Susan and Brian Christofferson, along with many loved family members and friends. A celebration of life service will be held on Saturday, December 30th, 2023 at 11 a.m. at the Oakland United Methodist Church. Casual dress is preferred. 
jeans, and Okaboji attire in her honor. Memorials will be directed by the family. Now turning to the sports page and the NFL, this story is titled, Unhappy Holiday. The Chiefs lost again. The Eagles struggled against the lowly Giants. The 49ers were embarrassed at home. Christmas Day was rough on Super Bowl contenders, except for the Ravens. Lamar Jackson boosted his MVP chances, and Baltimore made a major statement with a convincing 33-19 victory over San Francisco in a primetime matchup Monday night that featured the NFL's two number one seeds. The Ravens would earn a first-round bye and a home-field advantage throughout the AFC's playoffs and with a win at home against Miami on Sunday. I'm honored to be in the conversation, Jackson said, about improving his bid for the second NFL MVP award. We just have to keep winning to get to February. That's all. The goal for Jackson isn't an individual award. He wants a Super Bowl ring. The Ravens have won five in a row and can't let up with the Dolphins coming up next. The 49ers were the NFL's hottest team until they ran into Raquan Smith, and Baltimore's tenacious defense. Brock Purdy became an MVP favorite with a sensational stretch during a six-game winning streak, threw four interceptions, and finished the night watching from the sideline after getting banged up. Despite the loss, San Francisco is still in control of the NFC's number one seed. The 49ers would clinch the top spot with wins over the Commanders and Rams to close out the regular season. But the rest of the NFC should have hope for watching the Ravens take down San Francisco. I don't think they're demoralized, 49ers coach Kyle Shanahan said about his team. We weren't balanced, had too many turnovers. The holiday triple header began with a stunner when the defending Super Bowl champion Chiefs gave one away, losing 20-14 to to Las Vegas. The Raiders scored a pair of touchdowns on consecutive turnovers by Patrick Mahomes and won a game without completing a pass after the first quarter. The Chiefs have now lost 5 of 8 and likely will have to play their first road playoff game with Mahomes if they even survive the wild card round. An offense that has sputtered throughout the season couldn't do much against the Raiders and was unable to overcome the costly mistakes. I thought defense played a good game. Just two mistakes that gave them two touchdowns there when you're backed up in their red zone, so you just can't do that, Mahomes said. Especially when defense is playing like they're playing, but I just have to be better in that sense and not make those mistakes and try to find a way to play the game and the best way to win it. Kansas City still has a two-game lead over the Raiders and Broncos in the AFC West, but hasn't clinched the division title yet. Chiefs need one win over the Bengals or Chargers to wrap it up, but their road back to the Super Bowl will look different. Mahomes likely is going to have to play the first road playoff game of his career if the Chiefs advance beyond the wild card round. After the Chiefs were upset, it appeared there would be a rout in Philadelphia. The Eagles jumped to a 20-3 halftime lead over the Giants that sent Tommy DeVito to the bench. But a pair of turnovers, including a pick six by Adoree Jackson off Jalen Hurts, got New York closer, and Tyrod Taylor threw a 69-yard TD pass to Darius Slayton that cut it to 30-25 to with 5 minutes and 22 seconds left. 
Down to 33-25, to the Giants had a chance despite clumsy clock management. Taylor's pass from the Philadelphia 26 was picked in the end zone to end the game. The Eagles snapped a three-game losing streak and stayed in control of the NFC East with an outside shot to still earn the number one seed. But a shaky performance against the Giants isn't going to silence critics. The Eagles often often haven't looked like a team that went to the Super Bowl last year. We know we have better football in us, said coach Nick Sirianni. To be 11-4 and and still have better football left in you, that's encouraging. But let's go. We have to get there. Now these NFL notes. Injuries pile up for the frustrated Lawrence. Dateline Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback Trevor Lawrence has a sprained AC joint in his throwing shoulder, but coach Doug Peterson says he could practice later this week. Peterson says Lawrence is progressing and he's a little bit sore. Doing better today than he did yesterday, Peterson said Tuesday. We'll see where he's at again tomorrow. The Jaguars host Carolina on Sunday with Jacksonville trying to end a four-game losing streak and keep alive hopes of making the postseason for the second time in as many seasons. Lawrence has started 51 consecutive games since the Jags drafted him with the first overall pick in the 2021 draft. He's been banged up as never before of late, dealing with a sprained knee, a sprained ankle, a concussion, and now a sprained shoulder. Lawrence landed on his right shoulder while diving for a first down on a fourth and one play in the third quarter of Sunday's three. 30-12 to 12 loss at Tampa Bay. He could barely lift his arm in the locker room after the game. He was ineffective before he got hurt, throwing two interceptions and losing a fumble as Jacksonville fell behind 30-0 to zero on the way to its fourth straight loss. Lawrence completed 17 for 29 passes for 211 yards, and all three of his turnovers led to Tampa Bay touchdowns. Lawrence's frustration seemed to reach a new high after the game. It looks like we don't even practice, Lawrence said. The stuff that we're doing, we look lost. No sense of urgency. I mean, the list goes on and on. I feel like we have good weeks of preparation, and I feel like we're prepared going into games, and then something happens on game day. The last month where I just, it just all falls apart. And the briefly column, Texans. Houston claimed hard-hitting but oft-suspended safety Kareem Jackson off waivers from the Denver Broncos. Jackson began his 14-year career with the Texans at the 20th overall pick in the 2010 draft out of Alabama. After nine seasons with Houston, he moved to safety when he joined the Broncos in 2019. This year, he's repeatedly run afoul of the league's safety rules with severe illegal hits. Steelers Mason Rudolph's dynamic play against Cincinnati helped keep Pittsburgh's season alive. The longtime backup quarterback could get a chance to do it again when the Steelers visit Seattle on New Year's Eve. Coach Mike Tomlin said Rudolph will have the ball to begin the week and will get the nod against the Seahawks if starter Kenny Pickett can't go. Jets. Trevor Simeon will start a second consecutive game at at quarterback for New York with Zach Wilson still in the concussion protocol. Coach Robert Salee ruled Wilson out Tuesday as the Jets prepared to face the Browns in Cleveland on Thursday. Browns. Cleveland 
will be without kicker Dustin Hopkins for Thursday's game against the New York Jets because of a left hamstring injury as the Browns try to clinch a playoff berth. Saints. New Orleans coach Dennis Allen is all but ruling out the return of top cornerback Marshawn Lattimore or starting receiver Michael Thomas for Sunday's game at Tampa Bay. Both players have been eligible to return from IR since last week but are not expected to practice this week. And the Vikings? Minnesota Minnesota coach Kevin O'Connell said tight end TJ Hawkinson and linebacker DJ Wanham will miss the rest of the season with injuries. Hawkinson sustained tears to the MCL and ACL in his knee during Sunday's loss to Detroit. Wanham tore his quadriceps on a non-contact injury. Now turning to college football and the bowl roundup. Taylor sparks Minnesota's win in Quick Lane Bowl. Dateline Detroit. Freshman Darius Taylor returned from a leg injury to rush for a career-high 208 yards, and Minnesota beat Bowling Green 30-24 in the Quick Lane Bowl on Tuesday. Minnesota, which was selected for the bowl because it had the best academic progress rate among five win teams, won its seventh consecutive bowl game overall and fifth in a row under coach P.J. Fleck. Taylor, who missed the Gophers' previous five games, had 35 carries, including a 17-yard touchdown run midway through the fourth quarter that gave Minnesota a 30-17 lead. The five foot eleven running back, a Detroit native, averaged one hundred seventy six yards during a three game stretch in September, but had only played in one game since. It's so cool to watch him come back to his home city and his home state and do what he did in front of a lot of people who came to support him, Flex said. He's a really special individual, a great young person, and he's going to be one of the faces of this program for a long time. First responder bull. Texas State, 45, Rice, 21. Linebacker Brian Holloway returned two interceptions for touchdowns. Jamal Jeter ran for three scores, and Texas State beat Rice in Dallas. It was the Bobcats' first bowl appearance as an FBS program. Holloway had a 36-yard pick-six early in the second quarter and returned his second interception 48 yards for a touchdown in the third that made it 38-21. to Both picks came against A.J. Padgett, who was intercepted three times overall. Shaqui Itrash relieved Padgett in the fourth quarter and threw two more picks as Texas State forced seven turnovers. Ishmael Mahdi rushed for 122 yards on 24 carries for the Bobcats, and Dean Connors scored on runs of 3 and 28 yards for the Owls. Guaranteed Rate Bowl, Kansas 49, UNLV 36. Jason Bean threw for 449 yards in all six of his touchdown passes to two receivers, and penalty-plagued Kansas outlasted UNLV in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl. The Jayhawks ranked 14th nationally for fewest penalties with 55 during the regular season, were flagged 18 times for 210 yards, including four personal fouls. They made up for it with an explosive offense that produced 591 total yards at Chase Field in Phoenix. Luke Grimm had four catches for 16 yards and three touchdowns. Lawrence Arnold added six catches for 132 yards and three more scores, giving Kansas 
two receivers with three touchdowns each in a game for the first time in program history. Jaden Mayava threw two touchdown passes in the third quarter to rally UNLV nearly all the way back from a 21-point deficit early in the second, but the Rebels couldn't stop Kansas. Maeva added a 50-yard touchdown pass to Seneca McKee and finished 24 of 35 for 291 yards with two interceptions. Now turning to page two in the NBA. Monday's results, New York 129, Milwaukee 122. Denver beat Golden State 120 to 114. Boston beat the LA Lakers 126 to 115. Miami beat Philadelphia 119 to 113. And Dallas beat Phoenix 128 to 114. Tuesday's results, Brooklyn over Detroit 118 to 112. Orlando over Washington, 127 to 119. Chicago beat Atlanta, 118 to 113. Indiana had 123 over Houston, 117. Oklahoma City had 129 over Minnesota, 106. Utah beat San Antonio, 130 to 118. Memphis beat New Orleans, 116 over uh, 115 in overtime. And Portland was over Sacramento, 130 to 113. And the LA Clippers beat Charlotte, 113 to 104. Wednesday's games are Philadelphia at Orlando, 6 p.m. Toronto at Washington, 6 p.m. Milwaukee at Brooklyn, 6.30 p.m. New York at Oklahoma City, 7 p.m. Phoenix at Houston, 7 p.m. And Cleveland at Dallas at 7.30 p.m. And Thursday's games, Detroit at Boston, 6.30 p.m., Dallas at Minnesota, 7 p.m., Indiana at Chicago, 7 p.m., Utah at New Orleans, 7 p.m., Memphis at Denver, 8 p.m., Miami at Golden State, 9 p.m., San Antonio at Portland, 9 p.m., and Charlotte at the L.A. Lakers at 9.30 p.m. Stat of the day, 10K. Luka Doncic of the Dallas Mavericks eclipsed 10,000 career points in the first quarter of Monday's game. He reached the milestone in 358 games, the seventh fastest in NBA history. Now to the National Hockey League. There were no games on uh, Monday or Tuesday. Wednesday's games. Columbus at New Jersey, 6 p.m. Florida at Tampa Bay, 6 p.m. Ottawa at Toronto, 6 p.m. Washington at the New York Rangers, 6 p.m. Boston at Buffalo at 6.30 p.m., Pittsburgh at New York Islanders, 6.30 p.m., Carolina at Nashville, 7 p.m., Dallas at St. Louis at 7 p.m., Detroit at Minnesota, 7 p.m., Colorado at Arizona, 8 p.m., Winnipeg at Chicago, 8 p.m., Seattle at Calgary, 8.30 p.m., San Jose at Los Angeles, 9 p.m., and Vegas at Anaheim, 9 p.m. And Thursday's games... Montreal at Carolina, 6 p.m., Los Angeles at Vegas, 9 p.m., Philadelphia at Vancouver, 9 p.m., and Edmonton at San Jose at 9.30 p.m. And the stat of the day? On this day in 2000, Mario Lemieux made his return to the NHL after a 44-month retirement during which he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame and became owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins. 
Lemieux picked up three points, one goal and two assists in Pittsburgh's 5-0 win over the Toronto Maple Leafs. And in more National Hockey League news, there's this story titled Panthers Hope to Build on Big Win. Florida Panthers coach Paul Maurice, a coaching veteran in his 26th season leading an NHL team, isn't quite sure if a big win heading into a break has any extra meaning for the players. They do for the coaches, Maurice said. I think the guys have shorter memories. We hang on to them for a few days. Nevertheless, the Panthers went into the holiday break on a high note, beating the reigning Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights 4-2 to in convincing fashion. It was a needed reset after having dropped four of their previous five games heading into that matchup. They are 19-12-2, sitting in third place in the Atlantic Division. The goal now is figuring out how to sustain it as they return to the ice and doing so will mean needing another dominant effort against another rival. The Panthers resume play Wednesday when they face the Tampa Bay Lightning at Amelie Arena. Florida knows that each regular season game counts as just one out of 82, but these games, the one last week against Vegas, the first of three meetings against Tampa Bay, give the Panthers a chance to make a statement about the team's direction. And the Panthers on Saturday returned to their brand of hockey. They were suffocating on def- defense, outshooting Vegas 42-25 to and holding the Golden Knights scoreless in the third period. We had lost a couple in a row, so to get that game and play that style of hockey the way we like to play was huge for our team and for just our whole confidence, said center Sam Bennett. That was definitely a big game. Winger Ryan Lomberg added, We were sliding a little bit in the last few games, so to leave off on a hard-fought win was important for us. While one game does not constitute a turnaround, the Panthers' power play was noticeably better against the Golden Knights on Saturday, and the team got rewarded with a pair of third-period goals on on the man advantage. It marked just the fourth time this season the Panthers scored multiple power play goals in a game. Overall, the Panthers put up 20 shot attempts while producing 9 shots on goal and 5 high-danger chances on 5 power play opportunities. We were shooting the puck, getting lots of chances, said Carter Veraghi, who scored the first of two power play goals. We had a couple of opportunities to feel it out there, which is nice. It's definitely huge for the power play. It plays a big part of the game. The plot Panthers still rank just 20th in the NHL on the power play, converting only 18.9% of their opportunities. College football on TV, ESPN and Fox beginning at 1 p.m. live. College football bowl game season continues today with Virginia Tech versus Tulane in the Military Bowl on ESPN, North Carolina versus West Virginia in the Duke's Mayo Bowl on ESPN, Louisville versus USC in the DirecTV Holiday Bowl on Fox, and Texas A&M versus Oklahoma State in the Tax Act Texas Bowl on ESPN. In National Hockey League hockey, Boston at Buffalo on TNT at 6.30 p.m. live. David Pasternak and the Boston Bruins skate against Casey Middlestadt and the Sabres at the Buffalo's Key Bank Center.
And we'll end today with the personal finance article titled Gender Gaps. It's hard to believe that in 2023, there's still no law requiring that men and women be paid equal wages for equal work. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, the average American woman has to work 15 months to earn the same amount a man earns in a year. Women who work full-time are paid about 83.7% of a man's salary, resulting in a $10,000 difference per year, a gap that only widens for women of color and women with disabilities. For non-binary individuals and other members of the LGBTQ community, data isn't as robust. One study from Ohio State University found that transgender and non-binary students reported higher average financial strain and were more likely to have student loans than cisgender students. With gaps this stark, it shouldn't come as a surprise that there's also a difference in debt. Statistics tell only a small part of the story regarding finances. Someone's ability to manage their money, credit, debt, and investments has nothing to do with the chromosomes they were born with or their gender expression. External factors and societal pressures play a large role in finances. On average, women are still responsible for the lion's share of caregiving, including child care and helping elderly parents, negatively impacting their lifetime earning potential. Women also tend to be more negatively impacted financially by divorce. By contrast, men feel socially pressured to exude wealth and status regardless of their success and frequently go into debt to keep up appearances. Non-binary and trans individuals who routinely lack family support have to take on more debt when starting than their cisgender peers. It also wasn't until 2020 that the federal protections were put in place to prevent housing discrimination based on gender identity. These factors can combine to put non-binary individuals in greater debt than men or women. And that does it for today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Non-Periel for Wednesday, December 27, 2023. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.